Welcome to Thrive, the Eastern Health Junior Doctors Medical Education Podcast. Thrive is brought to you by a team of passionate young doctors asking great questions and producing essential education. We're excited to bring you content and help you become a more confident and capable doctor. I'm Alex, a physician and supervisor of junior doctor training at Eastern Health, and I love watching our doctors grow. So let's jump right in. Hi everyone, this is Tisha. I'm a basic physician trainee at Eastern Health and I'm delighted to be joined by another specialty registrar to discuss more specialty medicine. Staph infections are encountered very commonly in the hospital setting. This might be in the form of a patient presenting from the community to the emergency department or someone developing a staph infection as a complication of other things that have been happening in hospital. Now, sadly, staph infections can have dire consequences if they are identified or treated too late. So to help us learn a little bit more and to make sure our microbiology is in top shape, we are joined by a Box Hill ID registrar and yes, my sister, Dr. Napoor. Hey, Napoor, how are you doing? Hello, I'm great. Thank you. It's funny how formal you've made this introduction when we're brother and sister. (laughs) All right. So I know staph is a topic that the ID team is also very passionate about. Could you maybe start off by telling us a little bit about the microbiology of staph and why staph infections are so important? Yeah, absolutely. You're right. We're very passionate about it. Um, So I'll start with the why it's important. And the reason is that It's unfortunately very common, especially in the hospital setting, and it has a high mortality. We don't know the real numbers, but we're looking at probably 15 to 25%. That's very serious. And it's something that if detected early and if we start treatment early, we can actually prevent complications. So that's why it's so important and we're so passionate about it. When we're talking about staph bacteremia, we're actually really talking about Staphylococcus aureus. There's other types of Staphylococcus species, and sometimes they can have dire consequences as well. But for today, I think let's just focus on Staphylococcus aureus. That's a gram-positive cocci for the micro uh, fans out there. Um, (laughs) And I think the only important thing for you to know is that sometimes blood cultures might say on it GPC, which is gram-positive cocci, and usually to help you, they'll actually say resembling staph. So that should trigger alarm bells in your system. Anytime you see that on a blood culture sample, that this might be a staph bacteremia and it's something very serious. Mm, I see. And is there a particular patient group that you would say is at high risk of getting staph? Unfortunately, everyone. So basically the thing is Staphylococcus aureus sits on your skin. So it's often part of skin flora for a lot of us. and. Unfortunately, what happens is that if there's a break in the skin, whether that be because you've got eczema, psoriasis, or just really frail elderly skin with skin tears, or if you've got something going through the skin, like an IVC, which a lot of hospital patients have, that's already a risk factor. So, and then if you pop on top of that, you know, ICU patients with PIC lines and central lines and things like that, that risk starts to add up. On top of that, when you add comorbidities, so immunosuppression or diabetes or other factors that influence your immune system, that risk jumps even more. So essentially, everyone in hospital can be at risk of staphylococcus, and it's something we should always look out for. And one thing that I think HMOs can really do on a day-to-day basis is assess lines. 
So if someone has an IVC in, every day you should look at it. Does the site look okay? And if you're starting to develop phlebitis or it's starting to get angry, take it out, put a new one in. Oh, I think lines are a particularly good point to mention, Nepal, because I know when I was on the Gen Med unit, we had the Marvel acronym that we would use daily on the ward rounds, and the L stood for lines because we would inspect them daily, because I think it's very easy for us to forget that lines are foreign objects that are great at harbouring infections. So it's really good to try and incorporate that into the ward round and check for lines daily to make sure that there's no evidence of phlebitis or cellulitis. In fact, it's now a requirement that medical teams visually assess each IV site daily on the ward round and document their assessment. And at Marunda, there's a peripheral IV cannula tracking tool that must be filled in. Um, And the equivalent at Box Hill would be documenting the IV cannula assessment in interactive view. And you know what? It's made a difference. So if we actually look at our stats at Eastern Health of staph bacteremias, before we introduce that idea of daily ward rounds assessing IVC, um, our staph bacteremia, um, IVC-induced staph bacteremia rates were actually quite high. So if we go back four or five years ago, they were really sadly very high. But in the last four or five years, they've come down. They're still too high um, to to be good, but... That it's making a difference. And even the nursing checklist now includes nursing staff to regularly check IVCs and actually document a phlebitis score, and it makes a difference. Oh, well, there you go. So I guess we have actual evidence to support the fact that we should be checking for lines daily, and it does make a difference in reducing staph infections. Now, I recently worked on a hemonc ward, and let me tell you, some of these patients developed some very nasty bacteremias, and a lot of the times, knowing my luck, it happened to be on my after-hours shift, and sometimes I just felt a little bit lost about how to clinically approach these patients and what I should ask on history or examination. Did you have any advice on on that? Um, Yeah, there's lots of things you can do. I think the first step is to identify when the the sort of infection presented itself if you can because like you said at the very beginning you can have patients presenting with staph bacteremia just from frail skin or things like that or you can have nosocomial from lines so that would be the first step if you find out someone's got staph in their blood to actually assess you know um, when did they start becoming unwell? When did they get chills, sweats, shakes? Now, not all patients are symptomatic at the very beginning, but that can be questions you can start assessing. The other things are getting to know a little bit about staph. What does it tend to do? So the first thing is it'll circulate in blood and then it finds spots that it likes and sort of makes itself a salvage home there. Things that it likes are metal or plastic, or prosthesis, basically, because the immune system in your blood supply can't get to it and clean it out. So if someone has prosthetic hips, prosthetic knees, pacemakers, you know, any prosthetic material anywhere, that's probably the areas you need to focus on. So if they have a pacemaker, focus on the heart. If they have a prosthetic hip, really move that hip and check for any joint irritability. Those are some of the things you can do. And other things are general things that staph does. If, um, you know, everyone that gets a staph bacteremia gets an echocardiogram and that's to assess for infective endocarditis because that's extremely high risk. So those things you can assess and just do a full head to toe 
any localizing signs and symptoms that might be worrying. The other thing you should do is call the ID team and they can actually (laughs) help you because it's completely okay for you to have encountered your first ever staph bacteremia and not know what to do. The ID team, I'd like to say it's very friendly and very happy (laughs) to come see your staph bacteremias and they can actually help guide you with what things you need to look out for. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And one of the other things that I was hoping to ask you about is investigation. So I know you've mentioned things like blood cultures already and and echocardiograms, but would there be any sort of other specific investigations that you think are particularly important for staph bacteremias? I know one of the things that I do generally do is is just the, the usual septic screen. And I've actually made a power plan for myself on EMR to make sure I don't forget things. But is there something specific that you reckon junior doctors should know about? when investigating for staph? Yeah, so um, first of all, just about the blood cultures. Once you've identified that there's Staphylococcus aureus in the blood, you should do daily blood cultures. And that's because it's a sticky bug. Often it's hard to get rid of. So we want to make sure that on serial blood cultures, we're actually seeing um, clearance of the infection. And if we're not seeing that, we look harder and do more investigation. So that's a simple first thing you can start off with, daily blood cultures. Echocardiogram, which is a transthoracic echocardiogram, everyone gets one. And then patients that are at extremely high risk, for example, pacemaker, um, uh, in situ or a mechanical um, heart valve, those patients might actually score a transesophageal echocardiogram as well. But that's something that we decide after the initial TTE. Other things you can do are based on localizing symptoms. So, for example, if this patient also now is developing a pneumonia, you can do sputum culture to see if there's staph in the sputum, or you can do a urine culture to see if there's staph aureus in the urine. Just as a side note, you should never have staph aureus in urine. So, you know, usually the urinary tract is things like E. coli and Klebsiella and Proteus, your usual gut and urine uh, bacteria. So, if you've got staph in your urine, It's only gotten there through two sources, either through blood or through an indwelling catheter. So, again, that should be alarm bells for you to see staph in urine, and that's something you can easily check for. So it sounds like once you've actually found staph in the blood, the rest of the puzzle really becomes about finding where the staph came from. Is it the skin or the respiratory tract or somewhere else? Is, is Would you say that's right? Exactly. For example, often we see staph bacteremias in patients with diabetic foot ulcers because, like I said, staph sits on the skin and then it gets in through an ulcer in your toe. So yeah. in those sort of patients that have got a really infected ulcer on their foot, sometimes you, can, uh, you can't see how deep the wound is and we might do an MRI of the foot to look for osteomyelitis. So the investigations really focus on what's in front of you. Yeah, and I think it's important actually to stress on the point about clinical assessment that you really have to look quite carefully. And I remember once doing an evening shift as an intern and um, I got a call from the lab saying that the patient has grown staph aureus in their blood. And I did my clinical assessment and I could not for the life of me figure out where the staph is coming from, where the focus could be. And I thought I'll just go, oh, you know, it's one of those unknown sources. And then my registrar came and asked if I looked at the back, which I hadn't. And this lady had a whopping sacral wound on her back. So it really goes to show that you have to look everywhere. Absolutely. And I'm actually really happy that you mentioned the back because that's something that we see 
um, sort of every now and then where patients are complaining of back pain and they've got staph bacteremia. And look, our hospital beds are really uncomfortable. So everyone <laughs> in hospital has back pain. But in staph bacteremia, it's something that we specifically ask for. And it's because a lot of them can actually have staph um, go and seed to the spine. So you can get vertebral osteomyelitis or discitis, and you can even get epidural abscesses that then push on the, on the, um, uh, the nerve roots. So that can actually be really important. And, and assessing the back is very, very, um, it, it's something you shouldn't miss. Yeah, for sure. Now, sometimes, Nepal, the microscopy cultures and sensitivities take ages to come back. Is there something that we could do in the meantime, or is there any kind of early clinical or lab features that we can look out for that can give us a hint that we're dealing with a staph infection? Yeah, so just starting with the GPC, again, um, I don't want to get into too much micro because it can be overwhelming, but usually the lab will say something like GPC resembling staph or GPC resembling strep and enterococci. So that's your first clue because there's a lot of different types of gram-positive cocci. If it's mentioning staph, you should probably call ID at that point and then start empirical treatment. If it's mentioning strep or enterococci, you might go down a different route. You'd still have to treat because any infection in the blood is bad. The other things that you can start with is um, looking for sensitivities. Now, just talking about staph aureus, which is SA, you have different types. So there's three big categories. You've got PSSA, MSSA, and MRSA. So PSSA is penicillin-sensitive staph aureus. It's not very common, and that's staph aureus that responds to Benpen. We see it sometimes, but not often. MSSA is your most common. That's your methicillin-sensitive staph aureus. And that means that it's not uh, Ben-Pen sensitive, but it's sensitive to penicillins that have very specific anti-staph activity. So things like flucloxacillin, that's your MSSA. And that can be really confusing because on the, um, on the micro, when you look at the, the results page, it actually says penicillin resistant. And then you're giving flucloxacillin, so it's very confusing. But that's what the MSSA stands for. And then finally, you've got your MRSA. That's methicillin-resistant staph aureus. That's your most resistant type. And that's when you're going for something like vancomycin, so a non-penicillin agent. So those are your three different types. Now, at the beginning, you don't know which one it is. So what we do is we focus on two of them, which is MSSA and MRSA, because PSSA is not very common. So when you start off, you might give both flucloxacillin and vancomycin until you know which one it is. And again, at this point, if you're starting to feel out of your depth about what to do, call the ID team. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, a weekend or if it's after hours, we're always happy to hear about a staph bacteremia. Yeah, for sure. And a lot of the times you might also need advice from ID, particularly if you've got a complex patient with multiple comorbidities where they might have liver or renal impairment, and that could, I guess, influence the metabolism of some of the antibiotics as well. 
Definitely. And the other people that are great, which is Monday to Friday in hours, is your AMS pharmacist because they're just a wealth of knowledge and they can also help you, especially with vancomycin. A lot of people find that a bit um, complicated to chart. So they can really help you there. And are there any other resources that you would recommend? Um, I think there's some guidelines on the antimicrobial page on Staph aureus on the internet as well. Absolutely. I think the most useful thing there is the vancomycin dosing. So just for everyone, this is um, uh, on the home page. When you click on the applications, you've got antimicrobial guidelines and there's lots of great stuff like sepsis management, gentamicin dosing, vanc dosing, um, even patient information for things like TB. It's really quite a good wealth of knowledge. Um, and the vancomycin dosing there is especially helpful when you're charting it for staph bacteremias. The other thing is we've recently just introduced an EMR power plan. It's when um, you're charting a medication and within that, it comes up with guides on how to chart it. So now there's a vancomycin power plan. So when you chart it and say vancomycin for adults, it actually includes the weight and the renal function. You can just tick it within it rather than having to open a guideline. So that's another good resource. And I reckon, you know, if you've got some free time, just play around with the power plan. Oh, definitely. That power plan is a lifesaver, um, particularly when you're in a met call for someone who's probably got a new sepsis um, and someone just goes, oh, can we chart some vancomycin now? Um, it's nice to have that power plan on board. It's, it, it is quite handy. Now, the other thing that can get kind of confusing with bacteremias in general is the duration of antibiotics. So I was wondering if you could maybe go over how you decide how long the patient would need antibiotics for. Yeah, look, nobody really knows the true answer, to wow, be quite okay. honest. And we're actually, the really exciting part is there's a huge trial happening in Australia called the SNAP trial, where we're randomizing patients to different types of care and early IV to oral antibiotic switch. So we'll know the answer for sure in, you know, another year or so. But for now, the general gist of it is that we have two types of staph bacteremia. There's uncomplicated and there's complicated. Uncomplicated staph bacteremia is basically you have a clear onset of how you got the bacteremia within a day or two. The blood cultures clear themselves. There's no evidence of any infection anywhere else in the body. And the patient responds really well to antibiotics. That's your simple uncomplicated. The complicated bacteremia is either they've got prolonged bacteremia. So remember that we're doing daily blood cultures here. Sometimes the blood cultures stay positive for three, four, five days. And that's when you start thinking, why aren't the antibiotics working? Maybe the staph's gotten somewhere where it's hiding. Or you find infective endocarditis or um, osteomyelitis or some other problem where the staph is seeded somewhere or metastasized is what we call it. So usually for uncomplicated bacteremia, we tend to go for two weeks of intravenous antibiotics. Whereas for complicated bacteremia, we tend to go for four to six weeks or maybe even longer, depending on the situation, whether we've got source control of the infection. So in general, most people will get at least two weeks of IV antibiotics. Now, this is before the SNAP trial, which will start in a few months. So you might see some changes to that, but that's the general gist. And two weeks is quite long. So that's why most people actually end up requiring a peak line and hospital in the home. So would you say it's appropriate to maybe have a chat with ID when when 
when you're kind of confused about how long to continue antibiotics for, because it seems like there's some very complex factors associated with deciding how long the antibiotics should be continued. Oh, absolutely. So South Bacteremias is something that ID will be involved in very closely. A lot of the times we'll actually take over care. Um, But usually the idea is that we will watch the patient every step of the way. We will be guiding on what investigations to order and also how long to give antibiotics. And if we switch to oral antibiotics, when to switch and what oral antibiotics to choose. We also tend to follow most of the staph bacteremias in our clinic unless they're going to rehab or gym um, so that we can keep an eye on how they're progressing on the antibiotics. Oh, gosh, Nafora, I reckon you have to be careful. You might be getting a lot of referrals for transfer of care now that you've mentioned that. (laughs) Um, Now, the other thing I was going to ask was a lot of these patients don't necessarily have to remain in hospital for the full duration of their management. So what sort of criteria might you use to decide whether a patient is appropriate for outpatient parenteral antibiotic therapy? So the I think the first thing is to ensure that there's source control and no active infection, right? So if the blood cultures are still positive, that patient's not going home. Mm. Or if they've got infective endocarditis and they're flicking off septic embolite to their brain, that patient's not going home. So the <laughs> first thing that. is that <laughs> you need to make sure that the blood cultures have been cleared and there is no evidence of ongoing infection anywhere. Now, of course, if they've got an, you know, a, a discitis, for example, they'll still have back pain. But if we're happy that there's no ongoing progression of that infection, that's okay. So right. that's the first step. Second step is they need access. So they can't go home without a pick line. We need to make sure that we don't have a problem in delivering IV antibiotics. Um, and the the third step is that they can actually manage a PIC line. So, you know, recently we had a patient that was actually a carer for a son with an intellectual disability who had quite aggressive behaviour. So we were worried that the son would actually pull the PIC line out. Um, now, that's quite an extreme example, but often you have quite elderly people that uh, might be confused and not be able to manage the PIC line. So that's another thing that's quite important. And finally... We need to be sure that they will be safe with the PIC line. So, for example, sometimes there might be um, patients that are intravenous drug users and have given history of, you know, injecting heroin through the PIC line. That can be a slight problem for two reasons. One, injecting into a PIC line directly into the heart is actually a very, can have serious um, complications. But two, it also needs to be safe for the hospital and the home nursing staff to be able to visit the patient. Having said that, I often send patients that have a history of um, injecting drug use home with a PIC line and they do really well. It's just about good communication between the patient and the treating team and establishing a level of trust. Often these patients really want treatment. They know how bad staff is and, and they don't want to miss out on the IV antibiotics. So it's not a contraindication to sending them home. But it's a consideration that needs to be discussed. Yeah, that's a good point to mention. So I guess that kind of gets us to a discharge checklist, you could say. That's something that I run in my mind when I'm sending patients with bacteremia home. The first is, are they well enough to go home? So have they been afebrile? Are there inflammatory markers coming down? Are the blood cultures negative? The basic stuff. 
Then um, do they have appropriate access? So I guess if they go home on oral antibiotics, that's kind of easy. But if they need um, parenteral therapy, then making sure they've got a good peak line in. And then thirdly, do they have appropriate follow-up? So obviously getting that HITH referral in place, making sure there's an ID clinic referral. And obviously if you need any sort of follow-up from your own home team's um, clinic as well. Yeah. I think Beautiful. that's that's pretty good. And then depending on the individual circumstances, ID might have a few other things to tack on top. So, for example, you know, repeat MRI of the back in two weeks' time or a repeat echo down the line, depending on where the infections have seeded to. But okay. the checklist you've given is actually quite perfect as your initial um, screening tool. Great. Awesome. And I know we've been through some of these already, but could you maybe just go over again some of the complications we should be aware of for patients with staph bacteremia? I guess things that we should be on the lookout for if we are following them up as outpatients? I guess one thing we didn't talk about is recurrence. So at some point you have to stop the antibiotics, right? Now, yeah. like I said, we don't actually have a randomized control trial that tells us what is the optimal time. A lot of it is just based off scattered data. So, for example, you've got a patient with a prosthetic joint infection with staph. You give them three months of antibiotics, some of it IV, some of it oral, then you decide to bite the bullet and stop. There's always a chance it can come back and that we haven't cleared it. So that's something that you need to be aware of. And you have to make sure the patient's aware of so that if they suddenly get really severe pain in that hip again, they come right back into hospital and say, I think I've got staph in my hip. So that's something that um, I always make sure when I discharge patients from the clinic, especially, you know, uncomplicated staph bacteremia is less so, but the complicated ones, it's important to say to them, we're stopping antibiotics. Most likely you've cleared the infection, the antibiotics have been successful and you'll be fine. But there's a small chance that there's a recurrence, in which case you should seek urgent medical care. Yeah, that's a good point, isn't it? Especially because I think in my mind, when someone who's had a bacteremia that's had prolonged antibiotics um, presents to the emergency department with symptoms of bacteremia again, I think it's it's probably unlikely because they've had such a long course of antibiotics. Surely they've eliminated any infection that might have been hanging around. But but it just goes to show that, you know, the possibility of not clearing the infection is also there. And so recurrence should be suspected in these patients. But it's not well, always just recurrence. You can have a new infection as well. So you should look for both. <laughs> 100%. That's a good point. We should look for both. Great. Now, those were all my questions, Nepal. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, ID is a very complex specialty, so I don't doubt that I'll be having you back at some stage later in the year to, to have a chat about more topics. Thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us for Thrive. Don't forget you can access show notes for this podcast through Workplace. Log in with your Eastern Health email address and password and search for the Thrive Group. This is your education. Please get in touch and let us know how we're doing meeting your needs, ask us a question or suggest a topic you'd love to hear us cover. You may also be interested in producing a podcast with us in your area of specialty interest. It's great CV building and an excellent start in medical education. You can contact us at thrive at easternhealth.org.au. We'd love to hear from you.